0: Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. On September 4th, 2018, just two days after the release of this episode, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee is scheduled to begin hearings on the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Given that President Trump has nominated Kavanaugh to replace the recently retired Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy, given that Kennedy has been seen widely as a critical swing vote on the court, including on the issue of abortion, and given that Kavanaugh is young enough to potentially serve for decades on the court, this nomination has generated a great deal of discussion and also activism by groups seeking to influence the votes of those senators thought to be susceptible to persuasion or to pressure. With the confirmation hearings about to begin, I'm now sharing this episode, which is my second conversation with experts knowledgeable about Kavanaugh's record. In this episode, I speak to two guests. One is a professor of law who's also clerked for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, on which Kavanaugh now sits. The other is a member of a think tank, law firm, and action center, and has also held several clerkships, including for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. We discuss a range of issues, including the likely status of Roe v. Wade and the Affordable Care Act, if Kavanaugh joins the court. This episode is titled A Mighty Pen, Part 2. We're in the thick of baseball season, and unless something dramatic has changed in the standings from last I checked, the Red Sox are sitting atop the standings in their division, so uh, that means Boston sports fans can both derive pleasure from where the Red Sox are and schadenfreude from the fact that the Yankees are not sitting atop the standings. And I'm talking about baseball because of a famous quote from then-nominee John Roberts uh, before the Senate, it's the famous balls and strikes comment where he said the role of a justice is just to call balls and strikes. So not to make law, but to apply the law. If nominee Kavanaugh during his hearings repeats that balls and strikes line, are you going to be nodding in agreement or rolling your eyes?
1: Well, I I won't be surprised to hear him say it, but I'll want to hear him say a lot more.
0: That is Brianne Gorod. She is chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center and previously, she has served as a law clerk at the U.S. District Court level, the U.S. Court of Appeals level, and at the level of the U.S. Supreme Court, clerking for Justice Stephen Breyer.
1: You know, it's uh, it's nice analogy to make, to, you know, say that it's just as simple as an umpire calling balls and strikes. But of course, the task of judging is a lot more complicated than that. You don't have just a square box where you can decide whether the ball was in the box or it wasn't. Um, co- judging, particularly on the Supreme Court, where there are, you know, often very complicated constitutional and statutory questions, um, is a very difficult job. And you know, so what I hope if he says that, um, is that, you know, the senator who's discussing um, with him we you know will have some follow-up questions, you know, how will you go about calling um, balls and strikes? You know, when you say you'll enforce the Constitution as written, how are you going to determine the meaning of the words that are in the Constitution? Would you ascribe importance to the history behind the text, to the topics that the framers discussed in framing those words? And the same, you know, sorts of questions when it comes to interpreting laws passed by Congress. Um, you know, does he think it's appropriate to consider Congress's plan when it was enacting the legislation? Would he consider Senate and House reports that help to, you know, give meaning to what Congress was trying to do when it passed the law? So I I won't be surprised to hear him say that, but I hope we'll hear a lot more about how he actually approaches the task of judging.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with, with much of that. I mean, I think that...
0: That is Jonathan Adler, who is a professor of law at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where he teaches courses in environmental, administrative, and constitutional law. He has served as author or editor of seven books and is a contributing editor to National Review Online. And finally, he has served as a law clerk at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit.
2: We want people to be judges who conceive of their role as akin to that of the umpire in that their job is first and foremost to try and apply the rules of the game in a fair and consistent manner so as not to uh, affect the outcome in a way that that privileges one interest group or, or one policy agenda over another. But certainly, that's the beginning of of what a judge is doing. It's not not a complete discussion or explanation of of what a judge is doing. Um, Questions about how a judge defines the relevant strike zone, uh, how uh, the judge approaches, uh, as Brianne mentioned, questions of meaning, what are relevant sources, what aren't relevant sources, uh, the extent to which precedent matters, and so on. I mean, those are things that help us understand. How the judge goes about differentiating balls from strikes, particularly in cases where you know where, where things are are close to the line. Uh, and, and as we know, in the Supreme Court, because of the way it, it gets cases, here's the hardest, most difficult cases where people of goodwill and good faith can and are likely to disagree, and we're discerning the, the line between a ball and a strike might be the most difficult.
0: Jonathan, given your sense of Kavanaugh's record, do you have a sense of the kinds of sources to which he has turned, and by extension might as an associate justice, turn in resolving ambiguity about the meaning of the text? So international law, for example, uh, or other resources? Well, I,
2: I don't think international law would be high on Justice Kavanaugh's list um, unless it w- the issue was one that arose in a context in which resort to international law were particularly required, you know, such as a treaty or some kind of international arbitration agreement. I think it's a general matter. You know, he focuses on text to begin with. Uh, he He's shown concern for structure and history. As a lower court judge, he has shown a lot of very careful focus uh, to precedent. Uh, of course, as a lower court judge, he is bound by precedent in a way that as a Supreme Court justice, he he isn't. Uh, so we don't know the extent to which precedent would uh, help in that regard. I think he also you know, brings to uh, uh, many cases... Uh, a sense of a sense of what the underlying baselines should be that against which we evaluate various legal claims. what I mean by that is uh, if you look at regulatory cases, which have been a lot of what he's done over the last dozen years uh, he his belief is that regulatory agencies have the power that Congress gave them and only that power, and so when interpreting a statute that's at issue in a regulatory case, he starts from the assumption that the agency only has what Congress gave it. And so in, in very cl- in close cases, that would tend to lead him to err on the side of assuming an agency has less authority as opposed to having more authority.
1: You know, my take is that Judge Kavanaugh has been a little bit less deferential to Supreme Court precedent than it sounds like, you know, Jonathan thinks that he's been. You know, there are certainly cases in which he has um, heeded what the court has said, um, but I think he has also been quite willing to uh, distinguish um, sometimes on, you know, very um, minor grounds in cases and areas where he didn't agree with the Supreme Court precedent that governed in a particular area. And that's something that even colleagues on the D.C. Circuit, the court that he currently sits on, have pointed out um, in cases where he has disagreed with them. Um, There was a case about whether undocumented workers um, should be subject to the National Labor Relations Act, um, whether they enjoyed the protections of that law. And he concluded that they didn't. Um, and the majority of the panel said that his decision um, was at odds with the text of the statute and also at odds with um, relevant and applicable Supreme Court precedent. Um, and he's not hesitated in his writings as a judge and as his, in his extrajudicial writings, so law review articles and in interviews, um, to criticize Supreme Court precedents um, that he disagrees with. You know, one area um, in which he seems to feel very strongly um has to do with independent agencies, so agencies in which um, the heads of the agencies enjoy some protection um, from removal by the president. He's, you know, made very clear that he doesn't like the Supreme Court precedents that have blessed the existence of independent agencies. And so I think one thing that I'm sure he will get a lot of questions on at his confirmation hearing, and it'll be very interesting to hear what he says, is, you know, to hear him talk about precedent Um, because as Jonathan noted, you know, he is as a DC circuit judge bound by Supreme court decisions, um, but he won't be um, if he should be confirmed.
0: Senator Collins. So the senior uh, Senator from Maine where I live and uh, someone viewed as a critical vote on the Kavanaugh nomination recently met with Kavanaugh and, Apparently, during that meeting, he characterized Roe v. Wade as, quote, settled law. How reassuring should individuals who are supportive of women's legalized access to abortion be by that comment?
1: I mean, I'll, I'll say I don't think they should be very reassured at all. You know, I'd start, you know, not with what Judge Kavanaugh has said, but with what President Trump said you know, during the campaign, candidate Trump repeatedly said that he was going to have litmus tests for his nominees to the Supreme Court. And one of those litmus tests was on abortion. You know, he said he was going to appoint justices who would vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. And, you know, against those comments by the president who nominated him, you know, I take a look at Judge Kavanaugh's record. You know, he has celebrated uh, Justice Rehnquist's dissent in Roe v. Wade, for its refusal to recognize unenumerated rights. Um, you know, Very recently in a case called Garza v. Hargan, he voted to give the Trump administration the power to keep an unaccompanied 17 year old immigrant who was in federal custody, to keep her from exercising her constitutional right to choose abortion. And um, this was a decision that the en DC circuit, so the entire court um, disagreed with him, holding seven to three, that the government can't, couldn't blockade um, that young woman from exercising. Her constitutional right, and you know, then of course we will look at what he said, and you know, he did tell Senator Collins that he'll respect precedent. Um, so did then Judge Gorsuch um, before he went on the bench. He, you know, at his confirmation hearing, said he was going to start with a heavy, heavy presumption in favor of precedent that a Supreme Court justice is bound by precedent. But then this past term, in his first full year on the court, he repeatedly rejected or called into question longstanding precedent. And and the final thing I'll say, you know, the other thing that Judge Kavanaugh said to Senator Collins um, was that he agreed with Chief Justice Roberts. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, at his confirmation hearings, you know, said that he thought Roe was settled law. But if you look at Chief Justice Roberts' votes over the past, um, you know, decade or so that he's been on the court, you know, he has repeatedly voted to limit access to abortion. He voted to uphold a federal ban on so-called partial birth abortion. Um, More recently, he would have allowed Texas to impose medically unnecessary restrictions in order to close almost all the abortion um, providers in the state. Um, So if his record is going to be similar to Chief Justice Roberts, um, that's a real cause for concern for those who um, believe in a constitutional right to access abortion.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think the formulation that something is settled law is... A formulation we regularly hear in the confirmation process, but it doesn't really mean anything, uh, nor should it mean anything. Um, uh, it would be inappropriate for any judicial nominee to make any commitment, either to the nominating president or to any senator, either individually or to the committee as a whole, as to how they would vote in a particular case. You know, unfortunately, presidential candidates, uh, as both uh, 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 Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton did during the campaign, and Bernie Sanders as well, make claims about litmus tests for their nominees to the Supreme Court. As best we can tell, um, no one who has made such a claim during a during a campaign has, in fact, asked a nominee to make such a commitment. Uh, and if they did, um, uh, I would certainly, if they did, and the nominee answered, um, I would argue that would be presumptively disqualifying. Uh, uh, for that nominee to be confirmed and certainly would would require their recusal in any future case. So this is kind of the dance that we go through where we want to know how a nominee is going to vote in a particular case. The nominee can't give us that assurance. Um, I I agree with Brianne that um, on the current court, there are four justices that would interpret the uh, undue burden standard from a case called Casey which is the prevailing standard for evaluating abortion laws. There are four justices that interpret that in a way that makes it very difficult for states to adopt additional restrictions on abortion. And there are four justices on the court, which it appears uh, are uh, more permissive in allowing states to adopt more restrictions. Um, Justice Kennedy, um, in his time on the court since Casey voted to uphold some restrictions on abortion uh, voted to strike down others. I think in terms of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I, I think most people assume he would, will be more likely to join the justices that um, tend to be more permissive in allowing state regulation uh, of abortion. Uh, I, you know, if I had to predict, that would be my prediction as well but I don't think we can go much farther than that. Uh, On the current court, there is only one justice who is explicitly on record saying he would overturn Roe in its entirety. That's Justice Thomas. Uh, We also, um, on the Roberts court, it's worth noting that this court as a whole, and largely, although not exclusively, due to the preferences and leadership of the chief justice, uh, overturns its own prior precedents at a significantly lower rate than did the Rehnquist court, than did the Burger Court, or than did the Warren Court. So this is a court that, as a whole, has tended to make smaller decisions. And you know there obviously are exceptions to this, but this has been the overall tendency of the court. And so I think the effect of of a, of a Justice Kavanaugh on abortion is more likely to be on the margin, possibly upholding certain restrictions that a Justice Kennedy might have invalidated, uh, and that that's more likely than. Uh, an outright reversal of Roe.
0: When I recently spoke to Stephen Vladek and Peter Margulies, a couple of other uh, legal experts, uh, each of whom had uh, quite a bit of familiarity with uh, Judge Kavanaugh, we talked about how what the state of affairs would be if more state-level restrictions were upheld by the court. And I asked... Uh, Steve, at one point, if he agreed with my premise that what we would see is, in that world, some women would have much less access to abortion, basically women living in redder states, southern states, uh, and women with uh, more limited financial means. And Steve agreed, but went farther, arguing that for civil liberties in general— Individuals and groups who need the federal government to vindicate their rights would be more vulnerable under a court on which Kavanaugh joins those four justices uh, uh, more more lenient toward uh, abortion restrictions as you as you just described.
2: Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that a Justice Kavanaugh is unlikely to. Recognize new rights that have never been recognized before. I think he was will probably be less likely to do that than Justice Kennedy was, but I don't think he's particularly likely to vote to withhold recognition or to overturn many decisions that recognized rights that were that the prior Supreme Court decisions have protected. So, for example, uh, I would be positively astounded. If uh, if a Justice Kavanaugh were willing to vote to overturn Obergefell versus Hodges, which uh, required the recognition of same-sex marriage on equal terms with opposite-sex marriage, I, I can't see a Justice Kavanaugh voting that way. In terms of um, threats to vulnerable populations more broadly, you know, it's it's worth noting that 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 some of the things we've seen in in Judge Kavanaugh's record suggest rules that while they might not be motivated by protecting uh, those who are more vulnerable may have that effect. So for example, in the criminal law context, uh, Judge Kavanaugh has written or joined some opinions, which make it more difficult for the government to uh, uh, show uh, that certain sorts of uh, uh, the mens rea was present for certain sorts of crimes that the the necessary intent was required. He, He Uh, 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 voted in another case, to recognize um, the validity of scientific evidence, suggesting that battered women's syndrome is in fact an actual occurrence and can explain uh, uh, a conduct, and this was a a divided opinion. So I think that that while we wouldn't expect to see Judge Kavanaugh's explicit motivation to be the protection of underprivileged groups, uh, I think there are a lot of areas of law where the consequences of his votes would be uh to provide greater protection uh for at least some groups than we see under current law
1: and i'll- ju- you know jump back in you know on Roe um and the question of kind of what is likely to happen with a justice Kavanaugh on the bench. you know Jonathan is certainly right. we don't know where exactly justices are on the question of explicitly overruling Roe with the exception of justice Thomas, but of course you know that may be in part because for the entire time that these justices have been on the court, Justice Kennedy was on the court as well. And so it was clear that there wouldn't be five votes to explicitly overrule um, that decision. And, you know, it's worth noting that um, this court certainly will overrule decisions, including longstanding ones. You know, just last year, um, there was a case, Janice v. AFNI, Council 31, um, in which the court overruled a 40 year old precedent, um, which had upheld public sector fair share arrangements. So, you know, when states decide that, um, non members of a union should be required to pay their fair share of the cost of collective bargaining. So that was a, again, a, you know, a precedent that had been on the books for over 40 years that the Supreme Court, you know, had a 5 4 vote overruled, uh, just last year. And the, the third thing I'll say on Roe is even if the court didn't overrule it explicitly, you know, c- cutting it to death by a thousand cuts um, is a is a huge huge deal um, for you know individuals who um, want to be able to access abortion. You know, if this court um, consistently upheld state restrictions on abortion, um, that could make it really difficult, if not impossible, for you know women um, in certain parts of the country to exercise their constitutional right to an abortion. So you know, for those who care about um, Roe v. Wade and access to abortion—you know whether it is overruled explicitly or the—you know possibility of it being—you know reduced to—you know a right that exists in no name only—you know this is an issue um, that people should really be concerned about and thinking about as they think about um, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. Um, Jonathan also mentioned Obergefell, the decision from a, a few years ago that recognized um, a right to marriage equality, and I think that's—you know another good case. To think about, because um, I'm sure you know Judge Kavanaugh will be asked about that case as well, and and that's an important case because you know even if that case um, remains good law, and it obviously should, and you know marriage equality is the law of the land, um, the question is going forward whether um, there's going to be real marriage equality or kind of a second um, class marriage enjoyed by same-sex couples, um, because what we've seen over the past few years is some state courts. Um, refusing to give same-sex couples um, the same rights and benefits that other married couples enjoy. And we've seen these cases coming up to the court. You know, There was a case um, in 2016 called VLVEL um, in which the Alabama Supreme Court had refused to recognize um, an adoption uh, engaged in by um, a same-sex couple. Um, there was a case just last year um, called the Von V Smith um, about whether a same-sex partner's name would go on the birth certificate um, for her child. Um, And notably, that was a case in which the Arkansas um, Supreme Court refused to list the same-sex partner. The Supreme Court summarily reversed that decision. They recognized that kind of differential treatment of same-sex couples infringes on Obergefell's commitment um, to provide same-sex couples the consolation of benefits um, that the states have linked to marriage. But that decision was only 5-3. Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and Justice Alito all dissented um, from that Supreme Court decision. Um, so there's going to be a lot of important questions that continue to come to the court about what exactly Obergefell means. And, and, and so this is another reason why you know, people should really be paying attention um, to this nomination. And, and you know, we'll want to hear about what Judge Kavanaugh's um, view on these sorts of questions
0: are. <coughs> Judge, you come forward and before you sit... uh, This is actually from the first day of the confirmation hearings for Neil Gorsuch. Do you affirm that the testimony you're about
1: to give to the the committee uh, be the whole truth,
0: the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? If you had the ear of senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee or senators in general who are meeting with Judge Kavanaugh, and you had a chance to suggest questions to be asked, as well as topics to be avoided because they're a poor use of limited time. Would you have any advice to such senators?
1: Sure. Well, you know, as I as I mentioned previously, I, I really would love to learn more about the way Judge Kavanaugh thinks about judging, thinks about interpreting the Constitution, thinks about interpreting um, the laws passed by Congress. Um, You know, as I said, he's talked about the importance of enforcing the laws as written, but I want to understand how he understands the meaning of those words. You know, if he'll look to history, if he'll look to Congress's purpose in enacting legislation. And, you know, I'd want to know if he says that he wouldn't, you know, whether he thinks there's any danger that judges will import their own policy preferences. interpreting statutes instead of applying um, the law in the way that Congress intended for it to be applied. I'd also, you know, hope that they would ask him about his view of the Constitution as a whole and the values um, that it um, embraces. And I think there's often this tendency to focus on the original text of the Constitution as it was first adopted and to give less significance to the ways in which it has been repeatedly amended over time. And so, you know, I'd want to ask him how he thinks the reconstruction Amendments. so those were the amendments um, that were passed in the wake of the Civil War, the 13th Amendment which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment um, which um, gave all, all um, people the right to equal protection under the law, um, the 15th Amendment which guaranteed a right to vote without discrimination on the basis um, of color. I'd, I'd want to know how he thinks those amendments change the values expressed in the Constitution. Um, you know, Judge Kavanaugh in his writings has talked a lot about the Constitution structure as being the place where our liberty is really protected. Those, those are his words. And so I'd, I'd want to know his thoughts on the liberty protections that are contained in amendments to the Constitution, in the Fifth Amendment, and in the Fourteenth Amendment. And so I think those are the kind of questions that I, I would encourage the senators to focus on. And I think I'd, you know, say to spend less time just asking whether certain cases are settled law. Um, you know right now we know which cases are good law and which cases aren't. I want to know more about how he will view questions under those cases and, and view the decisions of those cases um, if they're brought back to the court.
0: And just to jump in with a follow-up question, Brianne, what would the purpose of those questions be on your view? Would it be to actually inform senators' votes or would it be for some other reasons such as assuming that he's likely to be confirmed no matter what Simply getting him on record saying these things for some reason.
1: I mean, I think it's important for any senator who is voting on Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. Remember, this is a lifetime appointment to the highest court in our land. It you know makes decisions um, every year that affect the lives of Americans in really critically important ways. Um, so I think it's important that they have as full a picture as possible of the way he approaches uh, interpreting you know our our nation's. Um, highest charter, our constitution, the way he would apply the laws that they and their colleagues um, pass. And so I think it's important for them in deciding how they're going to vote. But I think it's also important that the American people, um, you know, understand how he thinks about our constitution, how he thinks about the laws passed by Congress, and how he's going to actually go about the job of judging um, if he should be confirmed to the Supreme Court.
0: Jonathan, same question to you. What would your advice be to senators and Why?
2: Well, my biggest uh, advice to senators would be talk less. You get the sense watching these hearings, the senators are more interested in getting screen time on TV than they are in actually getting interesting answers or informative answers from judicial nominees. We had one uh, judicial nomination hearing uh, for for a, uh, a nominee confirmed earlier this year uh, who had been a sitting state court judge, and he was asked a grand total of one question over, over the course of the hearing about a case he had decided, uh, the majority of the questions were about his Twitter feed. Uh, that's not a serious process. Um, and I, I think if, if we're gonna have these sorts of hearings and, we're, and they're going to provide value, there should be substantive discussion, not about, uh, or not, that, not efforts to, to have gotcha moments where you catch a nominee saying something that can justify voting against them, but as, as Brianne suggested, more substantive discussion about how is it that a judge should go about reaching conclusions, the sort of reasoning they should engage in, how they would approach the text, what, what various constitutional provisions mean. We could have a very interesting and informative discussion about that, uh, and it would be valuable to see, to have a public discussion about constitutional meaning. Um, the, the dance we see in, in nomination hearings these days, where uh, senators on one side try and pose gotcha questions, try and get a nominee to say something uh, that that justifies a vote against, or try and get them to make a commitment about a case, and then senators on the other side try and play defense, it, it is really just a spectacle and and not really worth uh, the time. So I, I would really urge senators to, to rethink their entire approach to this whole enterprise.
0: Well, Call me cynical, but what would you say to this view? Most of the hundred senators already have made their minds up barring some sort of smoking gun regarding, for example, personal uh, misconduct. And if that's the case, what value do these hearings actually serve?
2: I, I think it's a, I think it's a great question. Uh, and it's a great question for a bunch of reasons. One is... Um, Judicial nomination hearings in which the nominee comes before the committee and are asked a wide range of questions about a wide range of things, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And if you go back into the history in terms of how it developed, it's not the nicest history. Um, Historically, the focus was on the nominee's qualifications and their character, you know, to ensure there wasn't cronyism or something of that sort. I think that the best justification for hearings today particularly on the supreme court where you know, people are poring over every available document uh, about the nominee in question is that there is public value to a public discussion about the role of the court and the role of judges but if that's how we're going to defend the hearing process then that's the sort of hearing we should have and uh, that's unfortunately not the sort of hearing that that senators have 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 directed or, 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 or created. Um, but I, I think it's a very good question. I mean, the, the, the idea of just giving an opportunity for senators on one side to say how much they love the nominee and senators for the other side to say how the nominee threatens everything that they care about is not really a, a valuable, a valuable event.
1: The one thing that I'll, you know, jump in to add is something that I think is very odd about this particular process. Um, You know, Jonathan referenced the fact that people are pouring over all of the documents related to the nominee's record. And there certainly is a lot of pouring that is going on right now and has been going on since he was named. But, you know, we're not going to have access to all of the documents relevant to this nomination um, if the hearings go forward right after Labor Day, as is currently Planned you know the archives um, have informed the Senate that there are you know hundreds of thousands of pages of documents um, that were requested by Senator Grassley that are not going to be available until october and you know I think it's it's very odd that you would that you know the Senate would go ahead and hold a hearing um, on a Supreme Court nominee again a lifetime appointment to our nation 's highest court um, without the senators who are going to be voting on that nomination without the American people um, being able to You review all of the documents um, that might be relevant to assessing this nomination.
2: If I could could jump in on that, I think it's important for us to remember that we never have all the documents and never have. That is to say, if every nomination, uh, there are documents that would tell us things of value about the nominee that we don't have access to. We don't see the memos and papers from lower court judges own chambers when they're nominated. In Justice Kagan's case, we did not see a lot of documents from her time as Solicitor General, which would have been more probative on many issues than the documents we did see from the White House Counsel's office. When we have uh, government papers, we don't see documents that are withheld for various reasons under the Freedom of Information Act or the Presidential Records Act and so on. We always have an incomplete uh, uh, set of documents. Uh, Unfortunately, for some of the reasons we've already been talking about with regard to hearings, since it is this kind of spectacle and dance where the vast majority already know how they're going to vote uh, before the hearings even begin, we see the same game played with documents. So when Justice Sonia Sotomayor was nominated to the Supreme Court, she had a long and extensive judicial record, plenty of information in that record, in my view, for senators to make up their minds. Uh, Republicans, nonetheless insisted on getting board meeting minutes from a nonprofit she had served on something like a decade or 15 years earlier. Uh, uh, we all know that was not a book because any senator did not have enough information upon which to make base their vote. We know that was because they were they were hoping that there would be something in those documents that would justify opposing the nomination. And and I think that's that's a lot of what we see here. We we see are seeing a incredible amount of documents, an incredible amount of evidence about how a Justice Kavanaugh would approach his job on the court, uh, more data points than we often see uh, for potential judicial nominees. And the, the question is not, do we have all relevant documents? Because as I noted, we never have and never will. Uh, the question is, do we have uh, a critical mass of relevant documents that enable us uh, to evaluate the nominee? Um, but again, as with the, the questions in the hearings themselves, we don't have a process in which senators are really looking for information upon which to to base a decision. We have senators on both sides looking to come up with justifications for decisions they've already made.
1: And uh, the only thing that I'll add to that is, you know, Jonathan is certainly right that we don't ever have every single document that, you know, a nominee has ever written. But, you know, what we're talking about here are documents that we um, have had in past nominations and that we could have um, if the hearings were delayed in time for them to be made available. And so the question really is why the need to rush the hearings, um, given the enormous amount that's at stake in this nomination and given the enormous number of documents um, that have yet to be turned over, again, documents that Senator Grassley um, himself requested, um, particularly when those documents could well shed light on Judge Kavanaugh's views on important issues um, that could be relevant to senators who are casting votes and to the American people.
0: If I may, I'm going to nudge us to a different topic, and it's the survivability of a particular Uh, legislative act. And that's the affordable care act uh, affectionately or less than affectionately referred to by many as Obamacare. And I'm going to throw this question to Jonathan first. Uh, And as an aside, am I right that you were involved in a challenge to the ACA at some point?
2: Um, I was on an amicus brief in uh, the NFIB versus Sebelius, uh, challenging the constitutionality of the individual mandate and then some other research that I did formed the basis of a, a separate case challenging the provision of tax credits in federal exchanges.
0: Is there anything that you've seen in Kavanaugh's record or related to that, your sense of his judicial style that would give some indication of what his posture would be with respect to the ACA if there is any other legal challenge to it?
2: Well, there is a legal challenge and and the oral argument, I believe, is scheduled for the same week as the hearings. Uh, A handful of states have filed a challenge uh, arguing that since the tax penalty on failing to obtain qualifying insurance has been zeroed out, that the individual mandate can no longer be justified as an exercise of the taxing power and therefore must now be declared to be unconstitutional. Texas is leading a coalition of states making that claim. Um, For the record, I'm on an amicus brief uh, in in that case against Texas's position, which, as it turns out, is also against the position of the Trump administration, uh, because I think the the theory of statutory interpretation and the theory of a doctrine called severability being pushed by Texas uh, and, and accepted by uh, the Trump administration is is as one of my uh, co-amiki put it, uh, crazy pants. Um, uh, in terms of Kavanaugh's record, I, um, you know this is this is an issue because you know it, the people are looking for reasons to vote against or to justify voting against judge, uh, judge Kavanaugh's confirmation and arguing that he is a threat to the Affordable Care Act is believed by some to be an effective argument in some quarters. What's interesting is that. Um, Justice Kennedy, uh, in the NFIB case was a vote against the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. So replacing a vote against the Affordable Care Act with another vote against the Affordable Care Act leaves us where we are. Um, there is nothing to suggest of Chief Justice Roberts would change his mind about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And with regard to the most recent challenge, there is ample, uh, ample amount of evidence in both, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts's own opinion in the Affordable Care Act cases, and then his other uh, uh, decisions, to suggest that that he would he would find nothing redeeming in in this latest lawsuit.
0: And, so and just, just just to clarify, sure. if the oral arguments coincide with Kavanaugh's hearings, it's and, in district court. I mean, He'd miss it. He wouldn't be a vote in the case anyway. No,
2: the case is in district court. I, I don't even oh. think the case is going to get to the Supreme Court. But because the case because the case is in court now and because the Trump administration has accepted some of the state of Texas's arguments, um, uh, arguments that would uh, uh, justify or that would, would call into question some of the ACA's insurance regulations, the argument that's being made is, well, the Trump administration has endorsed this result. Maybe a Justice Kavanaugh would endorse the result as well. My view is that Number one, even if Justice Kavanaugh would endorse that result, it would not affect the outcome, which is the state of Texas will lose. Um, but I also think that one looks at, at Judge Kavanaugh's record on the DC Circuit. Uh, he's been on uh, involved in several cases involving the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and he has a record of rejecting really broad or uh, thinly grounded challenges to either the Affordable Care Act or its implementation. And he has shown an approach to doctrines like severability, which would suggest that he would reject uh, the Texas arguments as well. So I don't see anything in his record to suggest he would be a threat to the ACA. But I do see things in his record that suggest that insofar as the Trump administration is straining to find ways of re-implementing or re-interpreting the law, I think there's plenty in his record that suggests he would be skeptical of that. Uh, He tends to be skeptical of government agencies that adopt ambitious interpretations or reinterpretations of their governing statutes. And insofar as the Trump administration is trying to do that, uh, I think a Justice Kavanaugh would be skeptical of that.
0: Brianne?
1: Sure. So, you know, I I think, again, it's worth keeping in mind the president who nominated Judge Kavanaugh, and this is a president who, you know, as with abortion, um, made clear that he was going to nominate individuals to the Supreme Court that he thought um, would vote to undermine the Affordable Care Act. You know, during the campaign, he said that if he won the presidency, his judicial appointments would do the right thing, unlike John Roberts on Obamacare. And, you know, Jonathan is certainly right. Um, there's one challenge that he discussed at length, um, this Texas case that's working its way up. But there are, you know, other um, challenges that are out there or that might be out there. And, you know, we also know that this administration has made clear that it will do whatever it can to undermine the law. And so that's going to prompt new suits by those who are trying to defend it. There was a suit recently filed by New York and other states challenging a new Department of Labor rule um, that really undermines the distinction between how large employers and small employers are treated under the Affordable Care Act and is at odds um, with Congress's plan in passing the law. And so there's a whole bunch of different challenges in lawsuits that could potentially make their way to the court. And we don't know now, you know, the full range of those cases, what the exact legal issues will be. And so the fact that, you know, Justice Kennedy um, voted against the ACA in NFIB um, you know, doesn't I think tell us anything about what the new breakdown in the votes will be on any of these other challenges. And, you know, given how important the Affordable Care Act and its protections for preexisting additions are for so many people, you know, I think it's not at all surprising that people are looking at this issue and really want to understand um where Judge Kavanaugh is and how he may be likely to vote on it. And again, that's, you know, one of the reasons why questions about how he interprets statutes, um, whether he believes in looking to legislative history, whether he believes in considering Congress's purpose in enacting laws um, is really important.
0: So by extension, then, Brianne, you're suggesting that how Chief Justice Roberts would vote on the next challenge to the ACA that comes before the court. That's a live question in your view.
1: I mean, you know, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts um, certainly voted to uphold the mandate under the taxing um, power, but he also said that it was unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. He held that the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional. So it's not as if the Chief Justice has, you know, always cast every single vote um, with respect to the ACA in favor of the law. You know, we don't know, as I said, you know, what the exact nature of the next challenge that might come to the court is. And so I think, you know, we don't know where anyone will be. And, you know, that's why it's so important to try to understand um, where Judge Kavanaugh is likely to be and how he is going to, you know, look at cases um, that raise statutory interpretation questions um, like any case involving the Affordable Care Act would.
0: So, one thing... And I'm going to throw this one first to Jonathan too, because it arises from something that I saw you write about. I've seen you as one of a number of authors who've written about diversity among the clerks at the U.S. Supreme Court. And that has not been, um, a hotbed of diversity. There's been statistical, statistical overrepresentation of whites and of males. Why does diversity among uh, clerks at the U.S. Supreme Court matter?
2: Well, I mean, clerkships on the Supreme Court uh, open a lot of doors. They, you know, have, getting a sort of clerkship provides someone effectively with automatic entrance into the legal elite of our country, um, particularly in Washington, D.C. And if that elite solely consists of people of a particular type of background, then it's not representative of the nation as a whole. And so I think um, it's certainly reasonable to be conscious, you know, whatever one, thinks of, whatever one thinks about affirmative action or things like that, it's certainly reasonable to be conscious of whether or not um, the selection of clerks has created or perpetuated a, an, an elite that is uh, unrepresentative of the country as a whole. Uh, and, and and that's and, and given the fact that the Supreme Court's uh, Supreme Court clerks have traditionally been uh, overwhelmingly white and male, uh, even more so than the legal profession more more broadly, uh, you know, it's certainly, it certainly might be reasonable for people to ask about that.
1: Um, so I totally agree with Jonathan that you know the Supreme Court clerkships um, open doors, and so we would want um, those doors to be open to a diverse group of individuals. You know, I also think that um, diversity in the ranks of clerks, you know, matters because these are the people who are um, discussing the cases, discussing the legal questions um, with the justices. Certainly, you know, in every case, it is the justice who makes the decision about which way to vote and what the opinions say. But I don't think that means that the input they receive from their clerks is irrelevant. And so having people who come from different backgrounds, who have different experiences, Um, can widen the range of inputs and views um, that the justices have when they're making these critically important decisions.
0: Related to that, it's noteworthy that one of the justices who has the most racial and ethnic diversity among her clerks, uh, Justice Sotomayor, is also one who, if I recall correctly, spoke of the value of empathy in judicial reasoning during her hearing. So that would seem consistent with that and wanting to have a diversity of perspectives. And and so, Brianne, you anticipated my question, which was going to be about whether the content of opinions can be influenced by the embodied diversity among the ranks of one's clerks. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're implying that it might
1: I think there can certainly be instances. Again, you know, the justices um, are the ones who are um, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. You know, everything that comes out of the court reflects their views and they are the final decision makers. But, you know, I I think that the clerks obviously discuss the cases with the justices, um, discuss the legal questions presented, and those discussions can be informed by the backgrounds um, that the clerks bring
2: if i could just jump in real quick on on the on the clerkship diversity point um, one thing that's really interesting and, and might be surprising is that judge kavanaugh on the dc circuit uh has hired more women than men uh and has hired a, a higher a proportion of non-white uh clerks than um, many of his colleagues and as a percentage than most members of the supreme court uh and that's perhaps unexpected because we tend to think uh, that you, you would get more law clerk diversity perhaps from a, a liberal judge or justice and less from a conservative judge or justice. Uh, judge Kavanaugh has shown the exact opposite uh, tendency. And you know the one justice that has among the lowest rates of, of clerk diversity uh, over the years is uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so judge, Justice Kavanaugh would likely increase the diversity of clerks on the Supreme Court.
0: I was, even as a liberal, um, both, uh, and, and I really, I, I enjoyed the film RBG, but I was both dismayed to see that, uh, I, I think Ginsburg has only appointed one African-American. I'm not sure if you just said that.
2: Correct. One one in, in her time on the Supreme Court and her deep 13 years on the D.C. Circuit combined. She has hired one African-American clerk during that entire period.
0: Yeah, I was I was taken aback by that, and also I was also taken aback just to, just today to see that uh, one of the justices who uh, has only been on the time court for some brief time, but uh, but Justice Gorsuch uh, also is bringing in more diversity than um, some of the other justices. Um, and, it,
2: and it might be generational. I mean, I I do think that that when you look at the hiring of say you know just uh, uh, some of the younger justices, justices Sotomayor, Kagan. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, it may well be that the networks they draw on um, are more diverse than uh, justices that are, you know, 20, 30 years their senior, and so it's possible that that generational change on the court will itself uh, uh, help push a shift in that.
0: So here's the final question. And this final question, I'm going to ask you to respond to an analysis that if I were advising progressive activists, um, uh, this would be the analysis upon which my advice rested. And my analysis is that barring some smoking gun regarding personal misconduct Brett Kavanaugh is going to be uh, confirmed by the Senate as the next associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. And that as a consequence, spending limited time fighting that nomination is not the best use of progressive activist time. A better use is working to gain, if not this year, in two years, regain control of the Senate So that when, say, Justice Ginsburg's uh, seat is up for uh, replacement because, say, she is retired, there is a Democratic Senate in place rather than a Republican Senate. I'm not asking you to take sides in that political debate as to whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing if she were replaced with a a Republican or um, with a nominee congenial to Republicans or Democrats. But do you agree with that analysis?
2: You know, I, 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 I could make the argument either way. I mean, it, it has been observed that for the past probably 20 years or so, if not longer, the, the political issue of judicial nominations has done more to motivate the Republican base than to motivate the liberal base or the Democratic Party base. Um, and if one wanted to change that, one one possible strategy would be to take every opportunity to educate voters about what's at stake in nominations. You know, I think it's fair to say that the Republican base, or a large portion of the Republican base, has a very strong sense of what it wants in, in terms of judicial nominations, and is mobilized on that basis. Um, and it's possible that while a uh, confirmation fight might not stop um, uh, a, a confirmation, uh, that it might serve as an educational moment to help mobilize constituencies more. Now, again, I, I don't know if, if that would in fact be the result of such an effort, but that to me would be a plausible justification for, say, a Democratic senator or a Democratic activist who who is concerned about this nomination, um, could make in in justifying, uh, uh, making a lot of noise about this particular nomination?
1: Yeah, there is just a tremendous amount that's at stake in this nomination. You know, Justice Kennedy was the deciding vote, vote on a host of really critically important issues from, you know, LGBTQ rights to racial justice to environmental protections. Um, to, you know, um, some criminal justice issues, you know, you name it, he was a deciding vote. And so who replaces him on the court is critically important. And so I think, you know, this is an important moment to, one, focus on how important the Supreme Court is, how important its decisions are um, to the lives of Americans around the country, you know, whether they can go into court if their employer does something wrong, um, or they are, you know, um, hurt by a business violating the law, um, whether they enjoy the full scope of the protections guaranteed by the Constitution and by the laws passed by Congress. And so, I think it's important to talk about the importance of the court. It's important to talk about the importance of this vacancy. And I think it's really important to, you know, look at the record of Judge Kavanaugh and um, to try to understand how he approaches the Constitution and approaches judging And, you know, it makes sense to focus on all of these things in this moment, both for the purposes of this nomination fight and, you know, looking forward, um, because the courts are always critically important. The Supreme Court is always important. Lower courts um, are critically important. And um, there's just a tremendous amount at stake in who sits on those courts.
0: That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Adler and Gorod for taking the time to talk with me. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about each of them and also for information about some of the cases to which they referred. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode, use Twitter, and the handle is at tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review to offer monetary support go to patreon.com/tatter where you can do the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee or a beer once a month in any case thanks for listening and be well